Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, it's another fun time to be here to study the Word and get away from the cosmic system for a little while. I know none of you know what I'm talking about, but I can see it on your faces. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship with all the things that are going on around us. And any of you who managed to watch the news or think about the news today, I know that we probably need to take an extra 20 or 30 seconds to make sure everybody really is in fellowship. But uh, God is still in control no matter what happens. So let's uh, bow our heads. I'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll get started. Let's pray. Lord, your word refreshes us. It strengthens us. It helps us to think correctly about the issues of life, to focus on that which has eternal reality and to get our Uh, minds off of the details of life that can consistently change and move around and cause us all manner of uh, grief and worry, anxiety. But when we put our focus on you, we recognize you are our fortress, you are our our rock, our strength, and there is no hope in anything other than in you. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that uh, God the Holy Spirit will make clear to us the things that we study, that we can think and concentrate, that we can understand your word and that we would be encouraged by it, and that above all things as we reflect upon all that was done for us by Jesus Christ on the cross, that we might uh, rejoice because we have these possessions as ours eternally. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we have had about uh, two months or so of topical study coming out of Hebrews chapter 10, 25, uh, 24 to 25, talking about the one another passages. And now we are going to shift gears a little bit into the next subsection, which begins in verse 26, goes down to the end of the chapter, which is uh, a warning uh, passage. I believe this is our fourth warning passage, and it comes at the end of a section that that started in, in chapter 7. So what I want to do a little bit tonight at the beginning is just to remind us of the basic structure of Hebrews. It's important when we get down into all the details and start drilling down on specific doctrines or issues within, within certain passages and certain chapters that we come up every now and then, take a breath, and sort of get a bird's-eye view 
of what is going on so we don't lose a forest for the trees. And that's just the importance of context. Context is just the uh, hermeneutical principle of location. Same thing you have in real estate. Location, location, location. It's context, context, context. And the more I study, the more I'm in the Word, the more I come to understand context, the more I realize how important it is and how much the interpretation of the word is really dependent on understanding the context. What, what is the author talking about? What has he been writing about? What does he say? It's so easy to look at a passage and to just look at that verse and take it out of context because it sounds like something said in another verse. Uh, and we've all heard pastors who do what I call Rorschach exegesis. You know, Rorschach's the guy who invented the ink blot test. And so you look at an ink blot and say, well, what does that remind you of? Well, that looks like a butterfly. Or that likes, looks like the, you know, an African lion eating the head of a native. Or whatever it is, depending on what mood you're in that day. And people see all kinds of things. Well, what happens sometimes when pastors are studying, and I've seen this, they'll look at a verse and something in the verse reminds them of something else. And that's what they teach. And you're scratching your head thinking, well, how in the world does that relate to what's here in this passage? And sometimes it may seem like I do that. Uh, some people may think that, well, how in the world did we get off onto this when we're studying there in Hebrews? And I always try to bring that back because there are times when you have words or phrases like with one another that touch on or are part of a much broader doctrine that is in the Scripture. And so what we will do is take a step back and look at that topic of that particular verse that's mentioned there so that we have a broader understanding of it so that then when we come back to to the particular passage, we have a greater capacity for understanding all of the nuances that are there in that particular in that particular verse or in that particular section. We did that with the tabernacle. We've done it with all the different sacrifices and offerings just to come to grips with all the Old Testament background uh, passages in this section, and that just continuously uh, brings great dividends for us as we continue to go through uh, the 10th chapter. So it's important to have that context and to really understand it and to understand key words because a lot of times it's those key words, and we'll see an example of that tonight, that really uh, really give us a thread that goes through a passage and helps us tie together what the, what the writer is talking about and help us, helps us to get into his mind to understand what he is trying, uh, trying to communicate. And that's important as we get ready to go into this next section because this is one of the two most difficult or problem passages that people will come up with to challenge the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security teaches that when a person believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin, that at the instant that they believe in Jesus, there is such a, a miraculous transformation that takes place in from everything from the imputation of righteousness, declaration of justification, uh, regeneration, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism by the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, all the things that take place at that instant, that it is an irreversible 
process, something that permanently takes place in the life of that individual that had nothing to do with that individual's morality, intelligence, has nothing to do whatsoever with with anything in their life. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that's the focal point. The reason people fail to understand eternal security is because they fail to understand two things, sin and what Christ did on the cross. Usually their view of sin is too shallow. They really don't understand how all of the tentacles of sin spread out and affect every aspect of, of life and every aspect of the soul and every a- aspect of, of the universe. And because they have a shallow view of sin, they have a shallow view of salvation, and they really don't understand that Jesus Christ had to do all of it because if he didn't do all of it, we wouldn't have it because there's nothing. We are so corrupt, so dead, so incapable. We can't add anything of merit on the front end or the back end to what Christ did on the cross. And so it's got to be all from God. And that's what grace is, is that God loved us so much that he saved us. Though if he did the right thing, he would send us to the lake of fire. But he doesn't do the righteous thing. Instead, he satisfied his righteousness through Christ. So by judging Christ, he could thereby save us. And that is the beauty of grace. Anybody who thinks there's anything that you can do to lose salvation, somewhere hidden away in the nooks and crannies of their brain, they believe there's something that they do to merit salvation. You can't get it any other way. Now, I've had discussions with people who will swear up and down that they don't, but they do. You talk to them long enough, think about it long enough, sooner or later there's something that they're slipping in that is a reason why God saves them. Some Somewhere, if it's at the back door, it's the works that they've done after salvation or the front door, adding something there. And so uh, there's when you come to passages like the warning passage in Hebrews 6, which we dealt with already, and this warning passage in Hebrews 10, there's some things said that if you look at it, without understanding the context, without understanding how these words have been used, without understanding all the dynamics of the Old Testament sacrificial system, you look at it, and at first blush it looks like, well, it looks like if somebody does something, if they willfully sin, verse 26, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. So that means if you willfully sin after you're saved, then you can't get saved. Now the problem there is, They don't understand what willful sin is. And every one of us who's at some time after salvation has willfully sinned. If you don't think you haven't willfully sinned since you were saved, then you you are misdefining the concept of willful sin completely. You don't understand what it means. And if you misdefine that, then, then what you have to do is you have to limit it again to well, you know, sin really means those terrible twos or nasty nines or fearsome five or whatever they are, and I haven't committed adultery or murdered anybody, and I haven't uh, bowed down to an idol, uh, so that therefore I must, I must be okay. Well, that's just three sins, but the arrogance you demonstrated by saying that's the worst sin of all, so uh, you have to deal with that. And anybody who is so arrogant to think that they can do something to lose their salvation, something that God's grace wasn't great enough to cover, 
has a real sin right there that is greater than any of these others. So there are just all kinds of problems, but nevertheless, people get into a passage like this, and they, they just stumble. And when you look at this passage, there's one of four ways in which people will interpret this passage. First of all, and in any passage, uh, Hebrews 6 would be the same way. First of all, they'll say, well, there's no eternal security. That's what this means, that there really isn't such a thing as being eternally, eternally secure, once saved, always saved. That's the sort of a truism or simplified version. Then there's the second view, and that first view is the view of Armini, what's called Arminian theology. And Arminian theology uh, really has a problem understanding the sufficiency of God's work. Now, the second view is that there is eternal security, but those who stay in carnality or those who commit certain sins that are just so bad, that they, they never were saved to begin with. I believe in eternal security, but you, you see, you know that person. You know they have been they've been on drugs and they have gambled all their money away and they're they're a womanizer. They they can't be a Christian. What did you just say? You just said that certain sins keep you from being a Christian. You just said if you commit certain sins, there's no way you could have been saved before that. You weren't really saved. And I don't know. Probably everybody here in this room has been guilty of making that kind of a mental judgment about somebody at at one time or another. Just look at that senator. Look at the life he lived. He couldn't possibly have ever, ever been saved. And you're making that decision because why? And I heard a pastor say this today. There never was any evidence he had ever been saved. But see, that slips you you, inadvertently. This was a free grace pastor, but that just comes out. It just leaks out. We want to slap our mouth that that we said that. But that's what that implies, is that that person... That, that somehow they're going, if they're really saved, they're going to do something that's going to show it. And how do you know you're going to see it when they do it? How do you quantify that? That was a problem John MacArthur had, uh, has with his whole Lordship Salvation thing. I remember Dr. Hannah pointing that out years ago when I was a student at Dallas. He said, how do you quantify fruit? These people just want you to be a fruit inspector. To, to Knowledge of salvation is based on the promise of God. It's based on, based on fruit. So those are the two positions. Uh, they're usually taken here. Is there no eternal security? Second is, well, there's eternal security, but those who stay in sin or commit certain sins, yet they sin willfully. Well, they weren't ever saved to begin with. The third view is, well, you have to interpret this, but you realize he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about fellowship. Now, that view is a very common view, and perhaps that's, that's a view that you've been taught in the past about this, this passage. And I think that's what I've, I've primarily heard. But as you study this section and you really look at it contextually, what we're going to see is the issue here is a failure to understand the implications of the new covenant and new covenant blessings. That's what's going on here. That's what the willful sin is. Willful sin isn't adultery. Willful sin isn't drug abuse. The willful sin isn't... Uh, atheism, the willful sin is staying under the old covenant framework. That's what's going, that, that is what the issue was with these Jewish believers who were threatening to, uh, to abandon Christ, to abandon Christianity and go back into first century 
uh, first century Judaism. So we really have to look at this thing contextually. So to do that, we'll have a little review. Remember I said that there's uh, five sections in Hebrews. Each section has uh, two parts to it, a doctrinal exposition or a teaching point, in a, a section of instruction related to a particular teaching or doctrine. So there's an instruction, and then it's followed by a practical challenge or application in, that's connected to the main idea in the teaching. I'm going to teach you about X point, and now you need. I'm going to give you the application for it or why that's important in your life, what you need to do, and a warning. In some cases, the challenge and the warning are combined. In others, uh, they're distinct. So the first section went from 1.1 to 2.4, the second section from 2.5 to 4.13, and the doctrinal or teaching section was 2.5 to 3.6, and the practical exhortation and warning is in 3.7 to 4.13. And the third section was 4.14 to 6.20, you had the teaching section from 4.15 to 5.10, and then the practical exhortation was from 5.11 to 6.20, and the warning is within that. It's a, that's the first distinct warning section, um, 6.4 to 8. So those are the first three sections. And each builds on the previous one. We, I've spent a lot of time in the past going through those, and I'm not going to... Um, Hit those again. Those are usually indicated on tape lessons by the letter A after the number. Okay, A- A's are overviews, synthesis. B's are detailed doctrinal exposition. And C's are topical studies. Then the fourth section is the one we're in. This is the centerpiece of this, this whole epistle. This is the main thing. This is the largest section, and this is his primary point. Everything in 1, 2, or 3 leads to this. Everything after this flows from it. 7-1 to 10-39. The teaching uh, part is from 7-1 to 10-18, and we've taken about a year and a half to go through that because this relies so heavily on all those Old Testament rituals, on the structure of the tabernacle, all the articles of furniture in the tabernacle, all of the different uh, ritual observances and sacrifices that you had in Israel, and so we went through all of that in, in a lot of detail. Now we're getting down to the practical exhortation, which actually started back in verse 19 down to 39, but the warning section comes in 1026 to 39, which is where we are right now. So to understand 1026 to 39, we have to be able to connect it to what is said in 19 to 25 and to understand the, the practical challenge, the practical application, we have to understand and be reminded of what the main ideas were in 7.1 to 10.18. Then we'll come to the fifth section, 11.1 to 13.25. The main teaching will be in 11.1 through 40. Uh, First practical exhortation is in 12.1 to 29, and then there's a warning, 12.25 to 29, and then a practical exhortation. uh, The second practical exhortation is 13.1 to 25. So the last one has two practical uh, practical exhortations. Now, as I said, the fo- I'm going to leave that up there in a minute because some of you are still trying to work hard to get that down, and I keep getting emails from people saying, 
Those people back there in the video booth need to leave that up on the screen just a little longer so we don't we don't always get it down. So they're working at that, and some of it's my fault because I'll reach over there and turn it off because I watch you. What will happen if something's on the screen, you zone out. It's been a long day, and I'm looking at the screen, and I'm looking at one word. Next thing you know, you're just gone. So got to get rid of the visuals are nice, but I have to take them off to quickly or you'll go to sleep. Um, so what we see in 7.1 to 10.18 is the centerpiece of the book. Now, chapter 7, just turn back a couple of pages, and let's just think our way through chapter, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 7 starts off with talking about uh, Melchizedek and makes the comparison of Melchizedek, Melchizedek as the royal priest, the priest king of Salem, as a pattern for the priesthood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ's priesthood isn't patterned after that of Aaron. It's not a Levitical priesthood. It is patterned after Melchizedek, who was a Gentile priest king. And so this is this distinguishes the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in the course of that, he talks about the limitations of the Levitical uh, the Levitical priesthood, and therefore a need for a new priest who is going to be able to have a universal priesthood and not one that is limited. One of the limitations of the Levitical priesthood, if you remember, is that the requirements were all physical, they weren't spiritual. You didn't have to, there, there's no requirement to be a Levitical priest to be saved. There's no requirement for a Levitical priest to be in fellowship spiritually. None of that applies. It's all physical. He has to be genetically related to Levi. The high priest has to be a descendant of Aaron. He can't have any physical defect or uh, uh, other problems. He can't have. He can't fall under any of the categories of uncleanness that are listed in the in the Mosaic law. And if he fits all of those, then he can serve in the temple. And so everything is physical and ritual. It's not spiritual and related to salvation. These are really two different things, and we have to keep that in mind, that you can be an unsaved priest that's genetically related to Levi, and you can go through ritual cleansing and serve in the temple. But if you are saved and you're not ritually clean, you can't. You, you, you can't be in fellowship with God. So there, there are two different issues. There's the ritual service of God in the temple, and then there's your spiritual service to God uh, that is distinct. These are two things. And if you think that being ritually clean equals being saved, then you've got problems. And that's why a lot of people get confused when they go through these passages because they confuse those two as if they're as if they're identical. And we spend a lot of time going through those passages, and uh, chapter 7 goes on to point out that, the priesthood, Jesus Christ as a high priest, as a royal high priest, as an eternal high priest, is superior to the Levitical high priesthood. And so uh, his, the value of his priesthood is going to be eternal, whereas the value of the Levitical high priest is temporal and limited. In chapter 8, 1 through 9, 15, there's a shift that points out that to Jesus Christ's priestly ministry itself. And that this is based on the new covenant. That's when it brings in the new covenant. But it doesn't 
really developed that idea. It just points out the fact that that Jesus Christ, by virtue of a new priesthood, we have a new new covenant because the change of priesthood indicates a change in change in covenant. And as our high priest, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and so his priesthood is based on a superior covenant. That brings in a very important idea because what the problem is is these Jewish believers who are under some sort of persecution and attack and they are under some sort of rejection and they want to just give up or abandon their Christianity and go back into first century Judaism. And what the writer is trying to explain to them is that Christianity fulfills everything that was in the Old Testament and brings them under a new covenant basis relationship with God and you can't go back to the Old Covenant. So tonight when I talk about some of this, I'm going to use that terminology to contrast New Covenant to Old Covenant because that's the issue. They want to go back under the Old Covenant. Now, 8.1 to 9.15 talks about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, and then in starting in 9.16 to 28, the writer deals with the... Uh, the fact that the death of Christ establishes that new covenant. Verse uh, 16, chapter 9, 16, for where there is a testament or a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the one who makes the covenant. For a covenant is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So he's drawing this analogy to a will, which is a one form of a covenant. And so he's arguing that Christ's death on the cross establishes this new covenant and this superior covenant. And because of that, he is, Christ is able to enter into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly dwelling place, uh, place of God, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he's going to draw out the implications of that. Then when we get into chapter 10, uh, verses 1 down through 18, he deals with the fact that, that what the law is pointing out in terms of the sacrifices under the law were limited. They had limited value, and they had to be repeated over and over and over and over again, and they really didn't solve the problem of sin. They just solved the problem of ritual cleansing. But that's why they had to do it again tomorrow and again the next day, and the, the annual um, Day of Atonement sacrifices had to go on year after year after year, but they didn't solve the problem of sin. They only solved the problem of being ritually, uh, ritually unclean. And that is, that brings us up to where we are. So I've hit the major, major themes. And the key verse that we have to hone in on is the last verse in that section before he got into the exhortation of the challenge in verse 19. And that is verse 18. Now, verse 18 says, Now, where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Now, the word remission is the Greek word aphasis, which means to release, to pardon, to cancel, to forgive, to forgive a debt, that kind of a thing. And the idea there is is that because Christ has died, Verse 15, excuse me, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected or completed forever those who are being sanctified. Because there is a complete payment for sin, 
there's no longer another need for an offering for sin. See, the contrast is with the priests. Back in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, verse 11, it's daily, uh, make those who approach perfect. But now, in contrast, where there is remission of sin, because those couldn't remit, forgive sin, but where there is, Christ's death could do it, there's no longer an offering for sin. We don't have to do it anymore. Now, at the end of verse 18, it says... There's no longer an offering for sin. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. We don't have to go through that anymore. That's a good thing. Now, hold on to that thought. Because when we get down to verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It's the same phrase. It's a good thing in 18, right? Then it's got to be a good thing in 26, right? But see, everybody reads that in the English. They think, oh, golly, can't be saved now. There's no more sacrifice for sin. I did something too much. Well, if it's a good thing in 18, it's got to be a good thing in 26, or or the writer's crazy. And that's what, once you get a hold of that in your head, then that's going to make this a little more understandable and a little more, uh, a little more clear. Now, after he says this in verse 18, that there is no longer an offering for sin, he's going to draw the implication of that, and that's what happens in verse 19. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. He's drawing a conclusion. Because Christ has died and he's offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and it's completed That means something. Now we can do something that could never be done before. And so he's going to draw out that that, uh, conclusion. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy, uh, holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. 22, let us draw near. 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider one another and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's the implication. Because it's finished and there's no more sacrifice for sin, we can now do these four things. We can draw near to God. We can hold fast to confession. That is, hold on to the body of doctrine, the belief system that we now have as church-age believers based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we can think conscientiously, consciously about one another for the purpose of stirring one another up to loving good deeds and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so that conclusion is very important. He says, therefore what? Therefore, brethren. Now, this is a very important word to understand contextually if we're going to be able to interpret the passage. He is talking to a group of people that he calls brethren. And he applies this message to them as brethren. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Are the brethren believers? Yes. They are viewed as believers. There's no doubt in his mind that every one of the brethren are are believers. And they have, by virtue of the new covenant, death of Christ, are now in Christ 
and therefore have access in into the presence of God through his blood, which as we studied is a uh, way of talking about just his death. So if we substitute his death for his blood, we'll get the idea that because of Christ's death on the cross, we're not, we now, each one of us has immediate access to God. Those are, those are the brethren. But there's a problem with understanding the word brethren. See, some people take the word brethren as equaling um, as just Jews. He's a Jewish writer, and he's talking to Jews, and so he's using the term brethren in a horizontal sense to refer to his ethnic brethren. And the word is used that way in a number of passages in the Scripture where the writer is addressing Paul. Uh, for example, when Paul was in Jerusalem and he is, uh, is arrested and he talks to the Sanhedrin or talks to the crowd, he calls them brethren. He's talking ethnically, he's talking horizontally. There's other passages where it's very clear that when the writer of Scripture is using the word brethren, he's talking to them as fellow members of the royal family of God. Now, one of the problems you have in interpreting Hebrews is that some people think that the writer uses it both ways. Now you've got a problem because it's never used like that by any writer in Scripture. It's either A or B. It's never both A and B. You don't have that C option on the multiple choice that A and B are both true. A and B would be he's talking to Gentile, he's talking to Gentile believers in the instruction part, and he's giving a warning to Jewish unbelievers in the warning part. And that's a common way of approaching uh, up, approaching uh, uh, Hebrews. But that's just not right because it doesn't fit how the word is used. So I put this up on the screen. Brethren can either equal have a horizontal meaning of relating to horizontal. Uh, horizontally to refer to ethnic Jews. One Jew talking to other Jews would refer to them as brethren. Or it can refer to uh, other members of the family of God, the royal family of God. It's a vertical thing, so it's talking to brethren, meaning other members of the, of the royal family of God are the believers. And it never combines the two. It's never used in like one sense as it's addressing the group as as brethren, that you're Jews, some of you are unsaved, and then in the next chapter, brethren, and now it's shifted over to talking to them as members of the body of Christ. The writers don't do that. Some people think they do, but they don't. You can't demonstrate that anywhere. For example, in the book of Acts, Luke, there's two sections, there's two things going on in Acts. One is you have Luke writing it from the position of the narrator. He's telling the story of what happened. Sometimes he's there. That's when he says, we went to Philippi. Uh, then he says, Paul went to uh, Thessalonica. That's because Luke stayed behind in Philippi. See, we went to Philippi, but Paul went on. So he stayed behind. And so you have to watch those pronouns uh, very carefully. So when Luke is writing in the narrative portion he always uses the term brethren to refer to believers. He always uses it in a horizontal way. But in other places, there are speeches that he records, that he faithfully records what Paul said, or what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, what Peter said at the temple in the next chapter, what Paul said in other places. And when he is quoting Peter or Paul, they might use the word brethren in that speech to refer ethnically to fellow Jews, which is what Paul 
uh, did in several places where he is addressing a Jewish audience. But the writer doesn't, doesn't change unless he's putting words in somebody else's mouth. The writer stays true to his own voice, so to speak. Okay, so you, that's why you have to read carefully. The biggest problem, reason people don't understand the Bible, I'm beginning to realize more and more, is people can't read. They just can't read. They can't comprehend what they're reading. And our school systems are such a failure today, and parents are such a failure not backing it up and, and, and following it up with kids. It is just amazing to me how poorly so many people read and comprehend things. Uh, it's just not there. And, and I see this all the time. I'm in class. I read that verse. Tell me what it means. And I'm talking to pastors. I'm not talking to, to people who, who haven't, uh, are, aren't in a position where they should know something. And they, they read it and they just come up with, wow, where in the world did you get that? I sure hope, hope you have an accountant fill out your income tax because you can't read anything and figure out what it means. I mean, we all get confused at times, but my goodness. Uh, people just can't read. They don't know how to comprehend. It's 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 terrible, and that's why uh, back under the Puritans, when they established the their colonies in New England, the lowest the the lowest uh, reading rate uh, in any colony in in uh, I mean in any village in Massachusetts in the 17th century was like 98 percent because they had to be able to read the Word of God. Ninety-eight percent. We don't get that anywhere today, not even in private schools, I don't think. So we have to really learn how to read and pay attention to the details uh, details inside the text. So we have this passage that talks about brethren. Now, in Hebrews 2.11, uh, which we have one of the first places where the word brethren is used in the, in the epistle. And it says, both he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's our first use of the word brethren. Obviously, it sets the tone. He's talking about other believers. They are other believers. Uh, not He's not using it in an eth- ethnic sense. In verse Hebrews 2.12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. So again, brethren is related to believers. They are set apart positionally. It's not talking about an experience. For example, in three one, it talks about holy brethren. Are there unholy brethren? No, there are no unholy brethren, because when a person believes in Jesus Christ, he is sanctified. That's how the writer of Hebrews uses this uh, in several passages. For example, in two eleven, there sanctification here is phase one positional sanctification set apart in the body of Christ. So there's no such thing as an unholy brethren. You can't be an unholy believer. You are a holy believer. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how carnal they might be, is sanctified. They are a saint. They are set apart to God positionally, every single, every single one of us. Now, one of the next key passages that uses brethren is Hebrews 3.12. Uh, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, so he's addressing them as believers. The context, he goes back and he compares to the Exodus generation as believers, but they were unbelieving. And here he says, don't be like that. Don't be like uh, that generation 
lest there be uh, among you an evil heart of unbelief as a believer that you rebel against God and depart from depart from truth. Uh, Hebrews 7.5 is where, one place where he does use the word um, in an ethnic sense, but it's clear from the context. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren. But see, he's not using it in the vocative. What's that? The vocative is when you call somebody something. When you call your father dad or you call your mother mom, that's in the vocative. You are calling them. You are addressing them by a name. But he's not using brethren in Hebrews 7.5 as a vocative. He's using it as a description. But all these other passages, whenever he uses the word brethren as a vocative, addressing them by a name, it refers to them as, as believers. Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, in our context, the brethren are believers. They have the ability to enter boldly into the uh, throne of God. Again, we see this from Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So there's believers, obviously, from Hebrews 10.22, and then Hebrews 13.22, and I appeal to you, brethren, Bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. So again, all the way through to the last chapter, brethren always refers, when it's used in the vocative, to them as believers, not as unbelievers, not as Jewish, uh, not, not, not as, Jew, as Jews related to him ethnically. So that tells us, that's, that's a very, very important principle because this t- talks about the fact that or shows us that he's talking to them as believers, not as unbelievers. Now, if you look at the doctrine of eternal security, uh, when people question it, they think that somehow they can lose that salvation. Well, he addresses them even, even in the context of carnality or sin or disobedience or willful separation, as he did back in uh, Hebrews, what was that, Hebrews uh, 3.12, uh, that they can be brethren and still have an evil heart of unbelief. But they're still brethren. Okay, back to um, Hebrews 13.22. One other comment on Hebrews 13.22. Hebrews 13.22 says that uh, in the next verse, in verse 23, says you... Uh, here, uh, here in 13.22, it's talking about brethren. And then in verse 23, it refers to our brother... Timothy. So Timothy can only be our brother if we're all believers. So it's very clear that he's talking to to believers. Now, as we go forward in this, we have to, you know, unveil a couple of other things in terms of the process of of um, investigating the context. Now, so we've looked. I've looked at two things. First of all, the conclusion, therefore, in verse 19. Second that the message is always applied to them as believers. Never thinks about them as not being believers. Third, the, the, um, the pattern that we see from the Old Testament is going to relate to the, the Old Testament sacrifices and the structure of the tabernacle and the temple, and that the veil that separated God from man is now down. And so we have direct access to God because the, temp, the, the, the curtain's down. 
And so that means that he's viewing all of them as having that direct access to God in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And then fourth, what we see in the argument of 19 through 25 is that he draws out the implications, as I pointed out earlier, of four things that we all have, that all of his readers have, because of their new covenant position in Christ. They're able to draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That is the terminology that is related to positional sanctification coming right out of the sprinkling of the priest when he's initially with blood, when he's initially inaugurated into the priesthood. So that we're able to draw near because of that position in Christ. Second, they are to hold fast the confession. Now, a confession, the way confession is used here is not like confession in terms of admission of guilt, but it's confession in terms of admission of what you believe. And it's antiquated English now to talk about it, a confession of faith. We'd usually talk about a doctrinal statement. But it's the same thing. You go back into earlier periods in, uh, in history, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, then churches, denominations would write a confession of faith. It is a, an admission of what they believe. It is a statement of what they believe. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold true to the doctrine we've been taught and not fade out, not give up, not not uh, fade under pressure and go back to to Judaism because it seems to be a little bit easier on us. So we're to hold fast the confession of our uh, uh, the, our doctrinal confession, and then uh, third to consider or to meditate or to think profoundly about. Uh, one another in order to excite or stir up or stimulate, challenge one another to love and good works, and then forth not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So those are the four things. But if you notice, after he says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, he then says, as is the manner of some. That's the clue as to what the problem is, is that some of those Believers, some of those Jewish believers had already given up. They've already abandoned Christianity. They've abandoned Christ. They said, you know, I don't believe Jesus is a Messiah anymore. I don't believe that uh, our sins are paid for. I don't believe in anything related to the new covenant. We have to go back to Judaism. We have to go back to the old covenant. We have to go back to regular sacrifices and the Day of Atonement and all of the Mosaic ritual. And so there are those who have already given up and they're no longer associating with believers. They're no longer uh, involved in, in uh, local uh, churches, local assemblies. And that's the context in which he says, for if we sin willfully. Now, what do you think the willful sin is in the context? Going out and getting drunk? Well, he never mentions that. Getting, having a, getting involved in adultery? No, he never mentions that. The willful sin here uh, specifically is that sin of abandoning Christianity in order to go back into first century Judaism. Now, by application, we could relate it to some other things, but that's not what he's talking about to that audience. What he's talking about to that audience is exactly what they're doing, which is just giving up on Christianity completely and going back to their, to their former belief system. So that's what the willful sin relates to. Now, 
when we look at a difficult passage, a warning passage, or any other difficult passage in Scripture, one of the principles that you have to use in hermeneutics is what I call the Sherlock Holmes principle of hermeneutics. When we have eliminated the impossible, whatever is left, no matter how improbable it might be, is the answer. And that's in almost any Sherlock Holmes story you read. And just a project of logic and deduction and elimination. And a lot of times you look at a passage like this and say, well, this passage looks like it could mean that you could lose your salvation. But that can't be because there's so many really clear passages that talk about the security of the believer that what I have to do is say, okay, uh, it can't be loss of salvation because that's impossible. It can't be that, well, I wasn't really saved to begin with because that's impossible. Why is that impossible? You hear people all the time say this. Well, they were just a false professor. It doesn't mean that they were um, teaching at a college somewhere. They, they just made a false profession. They said they were a Christian, but they weren't. Now, this is where it gets really important. You sort of have to place, be very careful as to what someone is saying. Scripture makes it very clear that if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you will have eternal life. But what you have to believe is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Hold your place here and turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is the only passage I have ever seen that people try to go to to say that there are people who can claim to be Christians, but they're really not. It's John chapter 2. John chapter 2 starts off with Jesus uh, turning the water into wine. That was um, uh, that was a, a miracle of time. He just sped up the process. Then when you go on down past that, that establishes himself as his, his credentials, and he cleanses the temple in verses 13 through uh, 17. And then he's asked about a sign in verse 18. What sign do you give? And he said, uh, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And the Jews didn't under, understand him and wh- what he was talking about at all. And so they thought he was talking about tearing down the physical temple, and he was speaking of the temple of his body, verse 21. And then the disciples finally figured out what he was talking about after the resurrection. Then we come to verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name. The verb is pistuo, or the probably pistevo. Uh, many believed in his name, pistevo eis animas. Believed in his name. Pistuo, that is a phrase that's used over and over and over and over and over again by the Apostle John to describe what you believe in order to be saved. Just skip down the page a little bit or the next page in your Bible. Uh, to John uh, 3.18. He who believes in him, pistuo eis autan. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what do you have to do? You have to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So John uh, 2.23 says that, uh, or John... um, 
as John 3.23 says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So according to John 3.18, if you believe in his name, what are you? You're a believer. You're saved. But see, the next verse says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. See, if they were really saved, they would have works in keeping with their salvation, and Jesus would have trusted them. You trust every person you know that's a believer? No, we shouldn't. Just because somebody's a believer doesn't mean he can fix your car better than somebody who's not a believer. He may be a carnal, lazy believer. And the guy down the street's working his way to heaven. He's a Jehovah's Witness, and he's working his way to heaven, so he's going to do a better job. I've had people tell me that. I used to house it when I was in seminary, and I had one couple said, you know, we always hire Jehovah's Witnesses to do work on our house because they're working their way to heaven, and they do a good job. But these Christians are lazy. <laughs> what a terrible testimony. But there's a lot of truth to that. So what, what you hear from people, John MacArthur is one. Because Jesus didn't commit himself to them, they weren't saved. That's not what the text is saying. The text, they, they're saved, but they're stupid. They still want Jesus to come as the king, and he doesn't want to get involved with their political agenda. So he's not going to entrust himself to them, and so he, uh, he didn't. But the phrase indicates that they were believers. They just weren't trustworthy believers. Now, there's no other place in Scripture that indicates this concept of false professor but what are what when you really talk to people about this idea of being a false professor what are they really saying well there there are people who claim to be christians but they're not that's right i agree if that's your definition of a false professor someone who claims to be a christian but they're not you can have all kinds of people who think they're a christian because they go to this church or that church or they got baptized or their parents were Christian or they grew up in a Christian country, whatever it is, they think they're a Christian. But thinking you're a Christian is not the same or claiming to be a Christian is not the same as claiming that you have personally believed Jesus died for your sins. Those are two different things. See, you cannot falsely say, well, you could just be lying, but you can't falsely believe in the name of Jesus. If you believe in the name of Jesus, you believe in the name of Jesus. If you don't believe in the name of Jesus, then you don't believe in the name of Jesus. You may believe you're a Christian, but if you don't believe in the name of Jesus, all you're doing is professing to be a Christian, but you're not professing to believe in Jesus. And a person who, who, is a, who believes in Jesus is not a false professor. So it's, it's sort of a word game there, that, uh, a word trap that people can get, uh, can get into uh, on this idea of a false professor. We, we all know people who claim to be Christians, and they're not, but that's different from people who claim to believe that Jesus died for their sins and live as if they never heard of the Bible. Those are two completely different, uh, different categories. So when we eliminate, number one, eternal security because of key passages, which we'll look at in a minute. Second, when we eliminate the second option, that this is talking about uh, people who really weren't saved, but they lost it. And then the third option, fellowship. Well, it's not really talking about fellowship because I've kept emphasizing what? It's positional sanctification. He's not talking about experiential sanctification. So you can't interpret this in terms of being in fellowship 
confessing your sins or, or anything like that, there's only one thing left. And that must be the answer. And, and that fits the context. And that is what he's talking about is that those who are sinning willfully by wanting to go back under the old covenant instead of living in light of their new covenant relationship with God, which is established by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So we come to our passage, Hebrews 10. I want to read the first four verses and then we'll start getting into it a little bit. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Or as the uh, uh, New, King, or New King James says, a fearful expectation of judgment. Yeah, it's the same thing. Other, I think New American Standard says a fiery uh, punishment, fury of fiery punishment, something like that. As soon as they read fire, what do they think of? Lake of fire. Now, you haven't read the text. You've read into the text if you think that, but you haven't read the context. You're not letting the context control your understanding. Uh, Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is going to be an illustration from the what? Old covenant. Verse 29, of how, of how much uh, worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? He was sanctified. Positional. He was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace. So this is talking about believers who trample the Son of God underfoot. This is not talking about unbelievers. This isn't talking about um, the anti-Christian uh, uh, liberal union of lawyers, you know, the ACLU. That's describing them by activity, not by their actual name. Um, so, how do we understand this passage? And this gets into some fun grammar. Fun for me, not fun for you. Here's a way I've broken down this verse. It says, for if we sin willfully... That is set off in the Greek from the rest of the sentence by an unusual construction called a genitive absolute. And that just means it has a genitival uh, construction, a genitival participle that is unrelated grammatically to anything else in the sentence. And what it's designed to do is to make that stand out as something independent. Now, what's interesting is I read through about eight grammars today looking for the significance of a uh, genitive absolutes. And they don't tell you. And to me, that's useless for grammar. It just describes all of the grammatical characteristics of a genitive absolute. And it fits all, all of those. But why does a writer use this sort of unusual construction? Why would he emphasize this the way he does? So I picked up the phone and I called my good friend, Pastor Mark Perkins, up in Denver because Mark has really specialized in studying this. He just loves talking about this, and and um, he'll probably put most people to sleep. But he's writing a paper for future presentation on genitive absolutes. And he has gone through er- and looked at almost every genitive absolute in the New Testament. So I don't believe in trying to reinvent the wheel. So I'm going to pick up the phone and talk to somebody who's already done the work. And Mark makes a very good point. He said that when you have a genitive absolute, it stands out 
as, as something completely separate from the main principle. And the main principle is there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's a good thing, just as it was a good thing back in verse, verse 18. What happens with the genitive absolute is the, the writer is going to set up a principle that he is going to refute or that he is going to negate or he states something that is a false belief, and then he's going to to knock it down. And so that's what he's going to do. And with the genitive absolute, he indicates what they want to do, the wrong thing they want to do, which is uh, voluntarily sinning by going back under the Mosaic law. But the principle of grace still stands out because they're still saved, they don't have to. Be, there doesn't have to be another sacrifice for sin, because Christ paid it all. That's the point. Back in verses eleven through eighteen, Christ paid it all. So what he, um, so what he says here in verse twenty-six is parallel to what he said in verse eighteen. I have the Greek up there, which you can't read, but it's it's the same thing. Uketi peri hamartias. It's the same thing. Those words are the same in both Greek statements. The only thing different is what I have highlighted in yellow. Prosphora is the word for offering, and thusia is the word for sacrifice, and apolepetai indicates um, uh, remaining. So it's saying the, the same thing with almost identical vocabulary. Thusia for sacrifice, prosphora for um, offering are used interchangeably in this passage. Just look, and, and that tells you what this passage is, is really all about, emphasizing these, uh, these words. So if you go through and you do a word study, I'm trying to find my statistics here on, on these words. Here we go. On prosphora refers to a voluntary offering, a free will offering, a sacrifice, or a gift. It's used 18 times in Hebrews. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Fifteen of the 18 uses are in this section from chapter 7 through chapter 10. The noun is used five times all in this chapter, uh, so you have both the verb and the noun used in this chapter. Thusia is only used in chapter 10, um, or only used in Hebrews, 15 times in the New Testament, all in Hebrews, and 11 of those are in this section and six are in this chapter. So those two words tell you what is this chapter talking about. It's talking about a contrast between the limited sacrifice under the Mosaic law and the permanent sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we have to do some detailed work on that, so we'll come back next time. I'm going to leave you hanging. Once you understand this, go through it, read the chapter next time, highlight, underline every time you see the word sacrifice or offer, offering, verb or noun, doesn't matter, just highlight it, and you see that this is the the main thread that runs through uh, through this whole section, and that it takes us a long way to understanding what the writer what the writer is saying. So we'll come back next time and wrap this up a little bit, get into the passage. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to realize that we have a complete finished salvation, salvation that completely, totally finished the work of payment for sin. Jesus said it to Telestai. It's completed. It's finished. It's over with. There's nothing we can add to it. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing was left out. He paid the full penalty for sin, and therefore there is no remaining sacrifice. Nothing else can be done. 
No matter what sin we sin, there's no remaining sacrifice because his sacrifice did it all. And therefore, no matter what happens, we can't lose that salvation, but nevertheless, there is a threat, and that is the problem of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll study when we come back next week. So, Father, we thank you for our secure salvation and that we can rest and relax in your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.